Hello and welcome to Odds and Evenings, a podcast about mathematics, puzzles, numbers and games. My name is Alex, I am one of the, I believe it's two hosts that we have on the show, and uh, with me, as ever, as always, eternally, is the other one. What's your name? My name's Alaric. Hello Alex. Hello. Do you, how do you feel about being locked into an eternally recording the podcast type realm? Well, that that particular line, amongst me and my girlfriend, we've started doing variations of that intro, where she does an imitation of you. Um... And it's just you, but ramped up by another 50%. Oh, God. <laughs> You've become memeable. Um. <laughs> it's what, you know, it's what you, every, every content producer intends for their own memes. Hashtag big old prime. I know you're the prime target because you're the main audience for this show. Yep. Is Alaric himself, who probably has listened to it the most out of anybody. I'd be keen to hear from the audience, is there anybody who listens to any episode more than once? Because Alec was just saying off mic before the show that he listens to the episode when it's released twice in the morning. Twice in the morning. Uh, Sometimes I, I catch stuff where uh, the audio has bled or that kind of thing. Oh yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah. If there's like a technical error. I can sometimes I, I catch it, even though I release it at like midnight our time. I just like I, I get kind of excited for it. Just like the show. Yeah. yeah I'm sorry. I, it takes me about a week from record to like publish. And uh, I'm aware that you're in agony the whole time. And you're always sending me little messages saying, Hey, is the show going to come out soon? It's like, <laughs> when I have time. And I'm like, um, okay, cool. That was a nice discussion. Good, good, good. Wraps up the intro. Do you want to do some maths? Yep. Let's do it. Fantastic. Right. We've got all sorts of emails from people. And um, I'm going to start with a listener-suggested problem. Yeah. What's with this 2019 influx of emails? We've, we've had so many. I've been very busy yeah. at the uh, Odds yeah. and Evenings e- email account. Yeah. Um, so, this one is from Andrew Slattery. Hey, Slats. Coming in hot. What's he got? Um, so, he gave us various problems, but I, I'm going to give you this one. Now, this is a problem where I knew the first part of it, I'd done it before, and I managed to hash out a proof, but the second part of it I can't do. Okay. But I've got kind of close, so I need your help. Okay. Um, so, first part... I'll quote from him. Show that in any gathering of six people, there are three people who are all friends or three people who are all strangers. Okay. So that's the first part of the problem. The assumption here is everyone is either a friend or a stranger. We're talking about graph theory. Yes, we are. Now, we're assuming that two people can mutually be friends. Yes, it's there's no direction to these No directives arcs. where you think you're someone's friend and actually they don't think about you at all or anything like that. Yep. We need to show that there are three mutual friends or three mutual strangers. Okay, this is one of those assume type things. Yeah, so you're going for contradiction. Either, yep. either there is, right? There are three nodes that are all like connected to each other. Yep. And that's fine. That's the the case where there are and then what this is saying is prove that if that doesn't exist then there are three that are wait three that are all strangers from each other yes if you imagine ah, if you imagine the a situation where they're all connected in a ring okay so you've got then, six of them connected around yeah. the edge yeah then there will be two sets of three that are not connected to each other in that case imagine a, a pointy top hexagon okay yep the the, the top point and the bottom left and the bottom right are not connected to each other. And the bottom point and the top left and the top right are mutually not connected to each other. Okay, that's true. That's not general enough, though. No. Maybe think about colouring in lines. People often use red or blue. It's like we have a complete graph and we're colouring in all the arcs, either red or blue. And oh, I never really thought about graphs with like two types of connection before. I think it's going to be easier to imagine and describe rather than having arcs or no arcs. 
it's easy to talk about when lines are there. You can talk about structures. Talking okay. about when a structure isn't there is really hard. So having a triangle of, say, non-lines is a weird concept. Okay. Whereas having a, a red triangle or a blue triangle is immediately visual. At the moment, it, it, there's no difference between red or blue here. Like, there's no difference between stranger or yeah. friend. It, connection type A and connection type B. Yeah, you, you yeah. can recolor at will. If you look at a, a particular person, say you are one of the people. Yes. You have five connections out there. Yeah. You will have either three or more friends or three or more strangers. Sure. Yeah. So there are either three, like, three light red lines coming out or yep. three blue lines coming out. Yep. Yep. It's just the pigeonhole principle. Like, they can't not be. Mm-hmm. Of those three, let's say that all three were red lines. If any of them had a red line going between them, then you're done. Because those two plus you make three mutual reds. Sure, yeah. If they all don't... Then you're done as well. Yeah, because between them you yeah. get a blue triangle. Sure, without loss of generality. Yeah. It's quite neat, right? Yeah, that is. If any of them have a, yeah one type, then you're, you're fine. And if none of them have it between them... Yeah, okay, yeah, I see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why doesn't it work for five people? Because you have an even number of... Why doesn't it work for five Wow, this I really my brain is not wired to think about this problem. Hmm. I don't think I'm tired. <laughs> I mean, it is the evening here. So, um, if we follow through the same thing, but with five, when we had six people, yeah, the person had five connections, and so there must have been three of one color or three of the other color. Oh, sure. Yeah. When you've only got five people yeah. in total, they've only got Could four connections. Yep. Yeah. This is something called um, Ramsey theory, and you can generalize. So that is Ramsey free free, by which we mean there's um, either three of one colour or three of the other colour. So for the group, we can say that there's either three strangers or three friends, both of sure. those that have mutual. And yeah. um, R free free is defined as six. That is the smallest number after which you need to have those structures found. Right. So if you go any bigger than six, it's also still true. Okay. Whereas if you go five or smaller, it's not necessarily true. Got it. So, harder problem here. I misinterpreted this when I first heard it, and I wonder if you'll do the same thing. Okay. So, back to Andrew Slattery. Show that in any group of ten people, yep. there are either four people who are all friends, or three people who are all strangers. There is either the structure that there are four people who are all mutually friends, or the structure that there are three people who are all mutually strangers. But not both. Uh, are we trying to prove that they're mutually exclusive? No, we're trying to show that there's at least one of those. Okay. Notice that it's a bit weird there because they changed the number. Yeah, ten. Well, ten people, ten nodes, but we're showing that there are four mutual friends or three mutual strangers. Yeah, if a subgraph of the connected graph of ten doesn't have all red connections, then there must be a subgraph of size 3 with all blue connections, is what we're trying to prove. Yes, I think that's true. Okay. Yep. What was your misinterpretation when you first read it? I assumed it would have to be the same number of both. I assumed it had to be 4 and 4. Oh, your brain just turned the 3 into a 4 when you read it. Yeah. Well, I assumed it was a mistype, but it wasn't. I'll tell you where I've got to this problem. Oh, wait, hang on. Give me a minute. Accidental breakthrough. Okay, so what I'm looking at here is the problem says show that in any group of 10 people that this is true. I've managed to get it for 10, but I was on the Wikipedia page of Ramsey Theory 
and it said that you can do it in nine. So I've been aiming for nine because it's been a long time since I've looked at the original source email. And yeah, I've just checked again on the Wikipedia page. It is nine that you can do it in. Well, can you? Can we go through the logic for ten? Yep. And then maybe let's think about nine. Yeah. After that, yeah. I, I'm thinking maybe now um, Andrew Slattery has given me a problem which is possibly doable. Maybe the uh, the nine case you just have to enumerate it all. But I, I've been thinking about it, trying to get it to nine for um, quite a while today. Hmm. Mine is going to be slightly inductive, so I need to make sure that we're clear on two of the smaller cases before I jump into the main argument. Okay. Are we happy that R33 is six? That's the case we just did. Yes. So if you have six people, you have either three reds or three blues, or mutual. Sure, sure. The other case that I'm going to be employing is R42. Which is, what What does that mean? It's saying that we have either four mutual friends or two mutual strangers. Okay, yep. Um, the number for that is four, so it's not a particularly big graph to, to reason out. If you have four of them, a uh, complete four graph, then it's saying that uh, you either have them all red or... or one of them flips, yeah. Any yep. single one is blue. Yeah. Cool. Right, here is the logic. We are doing it for 10 points here. We're going to have one point that can be you. So it's all going to be relative to you. So you have a whole lot of red lines coming out of you and you have a whole lot of blue lines coming out of you. Can we... Yes. So what's red and what's blue? Because there's no symmetry anymore. Uh, you're, that's right. Let's have red as friends. Red as friends. Okay. Yeah. So you have some friends and you have some strangers. Possibly those numbers are zero. But you, in total you have nine lines coming out of you. You can be all red or all blue. Yeah. Over on one side, you have the group of people that you consider your friends. And on the other side, you have the group of people that you consider your enemies. Strangers. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, non Of course, all strangers are enemies. They're, they're the other tribe. I think I'm going to keep crushed. flipping back and forwards between all the strangers and enemies. Um, yeah. To me, the the opposite of a friend is a an enemy blue rather team, than a stranger. Red team, blue team. Yeah. Yep. So you know that argument we did when there were six people and that there were either three friends or three enemies. Yeah. We're going to do a similar thing here. You either have six or more friends or you have four or more strangers because you have nine in total. Yep. Yep. Let's go through the uh, the six or more friend case first. Mm-hmm. So if you have six or more friends, then because our three three was six, within your subgroup of friends... Yeah. So in that little haze, yeah. there are either three mutual friends or three mutual enemies. Uh, and there's three mutual enemies slash strangers. Yep. Then that's one part of the thing solved. Yep. And if there's three mutual friends, then because you're friends with all of them, then that's the other part solved. Yes, exactly. Right. Cool. And the case where you have four enemies. Yep, four more enemies. You're in the four case. Yep. So that's either going to have four people connected, yep, or it's going to have one set where they're not connected, and that makes a triangle of enemies, and therefore the three is complete. That's it. Nice. And I think this inductive thing works quite well, like, in general. Hmm. So I reduced the R4-3 case into a bit talking about the R3-3 case, and a bit talking about the R4-2 case. Like each of okay. them is reduced by one. I'm reducing one of the numbers. But this is only a bound. This is like an upper bound. Hmm. So as a bound here, we've got that RPQ is less than or equal to RP minus one Q 
plus R P Q minus one. Hmm. I don't know how strict that bound is, because this is giving me an answer of ten, and I know the actual answer is nine. Why can't we use the same argument with nine? Where does it fall flat? So the bit where I said you have f- six or more friends or yeah. four or more enemies. Yeah. If you only had eight people in total because you are one of the nine, then that means you could have both five friends and three strangers. It becomes, yeah, let's say we use the six case because it's harder to get to the four. Let's say we use it's six yep. and three. So you can get your four and then you're connected to three people. You understand where, where, where I'm going with this? So you don't have to you don't have to wait it around like the roughly halfway point. In the case of nine, yep. you either have at least six friends, yep, or at least three strangers. Yes, that's true. So so you can use the six friends case to get your four and three there. Yeah. But then when you're connected to three strangers, that isn't enough. You can't prove that you can get the four. Yeah. That's connected it. in that case. Yeah. So is there something that potentially you can do by considering pairs of individuals? If you take two people and then you, without loss of generality again, call them either a friend or an enemy with each other. Yep. And then you can see whether their connections, their mutual connections with the outside parties are the same or different. Okay. To You're treating them as if they are a hub themselves. It's like you're grouping their knowledge into one yeah, node. Yeah, so let's say they have a red connection between them. Yep then you look at anybody on the outside and it's either going to be red 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 blue or blue blue yep i don't know if this stuff if this actually helps <laughs> it probably doesn't when you're thinking about the four case i did see another proof for the free free case but i tried to apply it to the four free case and it didn't get anywhere okay but um it was quite neat for the free free case and, and maybe i was just doing it wrong for the four free so we're talking on the a graph of six nodes again yep we're trying to show that there's either a red triangle or a blue triangle. Let's consider things of the form A to B to C. So like a line and another line joined together, like a little chevron. We're looking for a blue line connected to a red line. And we're looking for the maximum number of those that can happen. If you consider a node on the original 6, the K6 graph, uh, there are different possibilities. You could either have all of one colour coming out, all of its lines are, say, blue, or all of its lines are red. Well, in that case, there are no of these blue-red line configurations to find. Possibility number two. Let's say one of your nodes had four of one colour and one of the other. So four blues and a red, or four reds and a blue. And there are four. There are four. Okay. The third possibility is that there are, say, two reds and three blues. or Six. Red. Yeah, there are six. So that's the maximum you can get. You can find six of them on each node. In total, there are six nodes. So the maximum of those you can get would be six times six, which is 36. Well, if you're looking for triangles which aren't all the same colour, so you're looking for triangles which are like blue, blue, red, or red, red, blue, then they need to be made out of two of these blue, red configurations. So every triangle that is not all the same colour has two of them. Two of them. It has yeah. uh, two of these blue-red line configuration. Yeah. I'm thinking them as little chevrons. Hmm. In total, you only had 36 maximum of those to go around. So in total, the number of triangles you can make 
would it only be 18 that are multicolored? The total number of triangles that you get on a K6 graph is 20. So you ha- have to have at least two, which are all of the same color. Ah, uh, yeah. So that's an even stronger thing, really. We only proved that there was at least one before. Mm. This is saying there's at least two. It might be that they're of the same color. Yeah. But that's quite neat. That, that That's a nice way of thinking about these things. Yeah. Um, I don't know how to do the similar sort of thinking for doing R4 free. Because that works quite nicely for triangles. I tried thinking about it for finding little K4 graphs. Mm. And the bound was nowhere near close enough. To be able to say something neat about it. Yeah. So, like, this 18 to 20 thing, like, that was only just. But mine was giving me numbers, which was... I was comparing 36 to 126. Mm. So, pleh, nowhere near. What's 9 choose 2? It's 4 times 9, right? It's 36. So there's no... Yeah, that's not an odd number. There's no way to... Um... Wait, why is 3 choose 2 an odd number? 3. But 9 choose 2 an even number? Um, because 9 is 1 more than a multiple of 4. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Brief aside. <laughs> um, okay, Everyone's so, just uh, doing the factorials in their head to check. So why is... Okay, right. So there's there, there's no argument that, that can be made around, oh, there's like excess of one. Yeah. You know, like you're, you're guaranteed to be in excess by one arc or something in one direction, and that leads to some sort of breaking symmetry argument that lets you do that. Was there anything on online about like why, like if... if there is a nice proof for this, or is it literally just? There is some stuff on proofs, um, right. but it's it's written quite densely, so I think it's something to analyze afterwards. Yeah. Um, if if someone has a nice way of explaining how to reduce our limit from ten to nine, it, even if it's by a completely different method, that'd be nice. I I can see that there are proofs of it online, but what I want is something intuitive for this rather than generalized. I want the kind of aha moment. What happens if you take all of the 10 cases and you just like blow up a random node? Does that... I think a lot of the bounds that we've got on these things have just been through enumeration. For bigger ones, I I think there are things that you can do with upper bounds, but they're not particularly tight. And the lower bounds are found by just showing that you can do ones which don't have those. Hmm. So for example, R33... The five node one that doesn't have a triangle, if you join all around the edge in, say, blue, and then you do the pentagram in the middle in red, that doesn't have a triangle of either colour. No, that wouldn't. So by pentagram, I suppose it means star. So there's a star yeah. in the middle of one colour, and then the pentagon around the edge Yeah. Uh, in another. So when we're finding these bounds, we're trying to find ones that ones that we can do which don't have the shapes below and show that all of the ones above definitely do have. I don't think it's the upper bound which is somewhat harder here. Here's a nice quote about it, which it gives us a, a bit of an idea of how hard some of this stuff is. Hmm. So, uh, Erdish, Paul Erdish, yeah. asks us to imagine an alien force vastly more powerful than us landing on Earth and demanding the value of R55 or they will destroy the planet. In that case, he claims, we should marshal all our computers and all our mathematicians and attempt to find the value. But suppose instead they ask for R66. In that case, he believes, we should attempt to destroy the aliens. 
<laughs> We've got bounds in these things. R55 is somewhere between 43 and 48. And R66 is somewhere between 102 and 165. <laughs> yeah, close enough. These things quickly diverge as you go bigger. But, um, yeah. We've done all the R2 whatever the number. Hmm. Because it's just whatever the number. Oh, okay. And we proved that. Uh, yeah. Well, if you think the R42 that we did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just the same. Same structure. Yeah. The R3 whatevers we've done up to R39. After then, it, we just have bounds. Does it go weird? No arguments you, can't, you can no longer make. I don't know. I, I'm just yeah. looking at a table of ones we've done, and they're green if they're we've got it to a particular number. Right. And then the only other ones we've done are R44 and R45. Everything hmm. else, we've just got bounds. As with so much of combinatorics, as soon as you make any of the numbers go a bit bigger, the whole thing just blows up. Factorials, eh? Who'd have them? I recently spent some time in a cottage with no internet and no phone connection. So what do you do? You set wood on fire and you read books. And so I was reading a book that I had been given two years ago called Scale by Jeffrey West. Okay. And it's quite interesting. It talks about a bunch of different scaling laws in in reality and how if you look at... I'm, I'm only about a quarter of the way in. Uh, but if you look at the scaling of various different factors to do with um, life, so tree branches, uh, lifespans, metabolisms, things like that, they tend to scale with various powers uh, in, in, in accordance with the with the, the volume of the uh, of the animal. They tend to scale with various powers that are some multiple of a quarter, approximately. So we're talking things like cube square laws here. We're talking. Um, no, actually. So that uh, I'm not get on to cube square laws because that's actually kind of what I want to talk about. But if you're thinking about things like what is the average metabolism of an animal as it gets larger? Okay. If you if you can imagine that like a cat eats a certain amount of calories. Yep. How how much does an elephant eat? Well, an elephant does not eat the amount that the cat eats multiplied by the elephant's weight divided by the cat's weight. If you're scaling by weights. Okay. Actually, it eats less than that by a factor of about 15%. Hmm. And so there's these scaling laws are present in all of nature where things typically scale non, non-linearly, non either super or sublinear. And that's non-linearly even if we're talking about volume as opposed to, say, length. Yeah, typically you think about these things in accordance with volume because that's like how bigger. But, you know, with, with length, it, it doesn't really matter because you just multiply by three. Yep. In, the, in, the, in the power, right? But we use volume. And so the earliest, which you've just mentioned, is, is cube square laws. And this was put in place by, uh, I think it's Galileo. Um, someone asked him why there couldn't be a, an, an animal of a certain size. Yep. So the argument goes, uh, and I forget whether this is the argument he used, but the modern interpretation of the argument goes that um, the, the weight of an animal... Uh, scales with the volume of that animal. Yep. And the ability for an animal to hold itself up scales with the the cross-sectional area of its musculature. Okay, I think. And its skeletonness as well. Um, depending on which you want to fail first, your muscles or your bones. Yep. And that's all based on cross-sectional area. This diverges quickly. And so the, the scaling factor of... Um, like weight divided by strength scales as three over two 
Yep. And then once that reaches certain boundaries, the animal is no longer able to hold itself up. And so your giant spiders from sci-fi or fantasy with their spindly little limbs would just snap if they've got burden on them. Yeah, and, and, and actually that's the reason why elephants are kind of stocky. Yeah. Is is because it adds this extra like area in, in, in the musculature, and that's also why the, some of the largest uh, animals that we see are um, uh, underwater, because they are not subject to as much constraint around weights. They're more... Um, it's uh, That's a lot more to do with like the friction in the water and things like that. And they, they, they do hit their own limits, but um, and yeah, that's it why seems... the biggest animal of all time is an underwater one. As animals get bigger, they get more spherical. Right. A nice, big, yeah. round, fluffy polar bear, as opposed to tiny insect with lots of dangly bits and antennae and bits. Yeah, although admittedly, one of the largest animals that the kids know about is a giraffe, and that's quite long. That's true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but broadly, you'd want to be stockier in order to in order to manage this stuff. Um, and so I was thinking about this, and, the, and then all of a sudden, I, I sort of got thinking about uh, higher dimensions because we talk about cube square law. Okay. Yep. But if if, if you can imagine a, a four dimensional being, spatially speaking, um, like maybe they don't have a cube square law. They have like a and I I couldn't find the appropriate word for uh, <laughs> for this. So I I use quart quart cube law. But actually, I was looking up potential words that could be used. And there was somebody called Robert Record in his 1557 mathematics book, The Whetstone of Wit. Okay. The root word for a square was Zenzik. How are you spelling that? Z-E-N-Z-I-C. Okay. From the Italian senso, property, and the German zenzi, meaning a number squared. And so he came up for power to the four. So it's a square number, a cube number... And then a, a zenzi zenzike was his word for it. Um, uh, I, I don't think it will catch on. A zenzi zenzike. Uh, uh, so a zenzi zenzik, the plural zenzi zenziks. Uh, it's a mathematics obsolete. Fourth power of a number, or as Wiktionary uh, actually says, which is a little better, bi-quadrate. 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 As in two lots of two. Yes. The square of a square. Okay. Yeah, that that doesn't seem scalable when you have to talk about fives. Mm, yeah, suffers a little bit. Um, yeah, and so and so a, a fourth dimensional being would have a like it would scale as four over three rather than three over two. Yep. Uh, the the sort of the weight to strength ratio, and so if you actually do the division of what those are, three over two is one point five, four over three is one point three recurring. Yep. If you take that up to a five-dimensional being, then it gets have... closer and closer to just being one, right? Well, yeah. So that's what I'm going to say. So you have you have five over four, which which is which is one point two five, and so the the bounds to how big a multi-dimensional being can be get sort of larger because they can. Yeah, you're right. Because because the scale they get bigger and bigger until so if you're an infinite-dimensional being, this is essentially one, and you can be as big as you want. <laughs> and not collapse under your own weight. Now you've got to find a way to eat all the stuff, right? You got to. But if there are other infinitely large, infinite dimensional beings, then you can just eat one of those, I suppose. So taking it down a dimension. Yeah, exactly. Two this, to yeah. one. It matters more than our cube square law. Yeah, two dimensional beings probably not that large. If you're living in the planiverse or a flatland. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that before. 
Yeah. Um, we need to have a Planeverse discussion at some point. Yeah, we have. Uh, I've left it at my parents' house, so <laughs> I, I, uh, reading it's quite difficult at the moment, but I'm seeing them soon, so I can get it back. Okay. I also had another thought. This sort of led me... So this conversation's a bit strange because I initially talked about scale, and I might have a proper chat about some of the more interesting bits from scale when I, when I finished it. Um, and then it led me on to the multidimensional thinking. And then as I was thinking about this, I was reading on Twitter, someone was talking about grinding in uh, skateboarding. Oh, okay. And someone used the phrase grind the moon. And um, I was thinking, how could you... Because how does that work? How would you grind the moon? Because the moon is a... It's like a it's like a, a three dimensional object, and then I was thinking about what what grinding actually is in terms of dimensionality. So grinding is when a three dimensional being yep. rides a two dimensional object along a one dimensional length, right? Because you you sort of grind along like a line. A, yep. a skateboard is a yep. is a is a plane that rides along a line, and you're three D sort of above the skateboard. Okay, I'll accept that. Yeah, and so higher dimensional grinding is like you could be a four dimensional being riding a three dimensional skateboard, and you can grind along a, a plane somehow, and so it gets quite confusing. Yeah, as with most higher dimensional stuff. I'm unhappy with calling that grinding at that point. <laughs> it might it might make the same kind of noise, right? <laughs> I think to grind implies just things are getting kind of abrased so in your pepper grinder things are getting ground up yeah in and i guess a rail grind the bottom of your skateboard and the top of the rail are being ground into each other but that might happen with a with a high dimensional being as well so yeah the uh, scales are a very good interesting interdisciplinary book from what i've read so far mm. lots of interesting stuff in it uh, lots of interesting graphs where things kind of plot themselves in a line and lots of use of log log graphs okay because things have to you know if you're scaling by um, multiplicative factors and you're trying to draw a graph then it's all just gonna everything's gonna look like a hockey stick and yeah. everything's gonna be bunched up in the bottom left yeah, so I you see. need to do a log log to just spread everything appropriately I'll come back on uh, scale once I've, once I've finished reading it but yeah some some interesting stuff already around uh, yeah, cube square laws and, and, and higher dimensional higher dimensional bits. I've been thinking about rating systems. Um, mm, yes, carry on. I have things to say about this. Okay, so I, I've been thinking about um, rating systems in terms of like things like chess performance, people's rating systems at chess. Oh, like ELO and stuff like that. Yes, exactly ELO. In googling this. I hadn't realised ELO, I'd assumed it was an abbreviation, an initialism. Right. It's someone's surname. Oh. Yeah. I <laughs> know. But I think everyone pronounces it as ELO. So ELO. Fine. Yeah. I, I'm just, going to do the same. Yeah. But what, someone was just called... Yeah, like, it's, it's someone's surname. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a Spanish name. Can't remember. Right. What do you have to say about them? Well, actually, I thought you were going to talk about like how movies are rated. Oh, right, like okay. A lot of investigative work has been done into uh, movie rating sites and found that they like add three to every score, or uh, things like if you are combining the bunch of a bunch of like star ratings on movies, is a ten out of ten 
five stars is a nine out of ten five stars because you round the four and a half up to a five and loads of people have different opinions on on how those all combined and compared um especially people who only do up to four stars as well how do you compare four stars and three stars to three four five stars in a five star system i thought that was kind of what you're talking about okay but if you're talking about rating systems that aren't uh elo obviously golf has handicaps and they have a whole system of like working out what your handicap is based on the the scores you've been getting on different golf courses and who you've been playing against. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, that sounds similar. And a lot of these ELO systems, they, they have slight variations on them to make them work. Um, the chess one that I'm most familiar with is the ECF one, the English Chess Federation one. Mm-hmm. Because um, I, I haven't played in a, a couple of years, but I was playing chess at county level. And so I got to the point where I was playing uh, probably once a week and so I had a proper rating and things I was rated 139 now to the Americans listening to this show that will mean nothing to them um, because this is the English rating system of chess rather than the more standard like FIDE 1 I would put it to you that actually to most of the English listeners that also means nothing to them as well right okay (laughs) (laughs) so how does this this work so you have some sort of rating uh, at the start of your season over the season you play some games and the games you play against are against people who also have ratings. Yes. Whatever your rating is at the start of the season, there are two seasons in a year, that is the rating that is used to calculate things, to make things easier. Okay, rather so, than some ongoing process. Yeah, it's not live updating like um, some of the more modern ones are. The reason for this is it's been running like this for quite a long time, and quite a lot of the people that are in the ECF are quite old. Right. Um, when I was going, there was myself in my early 20s at the time, uh, Rob, who was about 40, and we, everyone else was retired. Right. So this is not a place of innovation. So you will play some games. Everyone that you win, you get their rating plus 50 points added into your, um, kind of pool of things that you're going to average at the end of the term right if you draw against them you get their rating averaged in and if you lose you get their rating in minus 50 okay um if you are more than 40 points of rating difference between you yeah then you treat it as if they were only 40 away from you because oh, okay, that stops you playing a bunch of grandmasters, losing to all of them, and averaging your score up to fifty minus the grandmasters. Yep, and then yeah. and the grandmasters losing loads by playing you at all. Right, um, it's a protection. Um, there's a nice property that they've built into it, and it's to estimate your win percentage against someone based on your scores. Hmm, does it work? I it's designed so that it is true. And I, I don't know how this is true, but maybe we could think about it a bit. Hmm. So uh, you find the difference between your ratings. Yeah. You double it. Okay. And that is the difference between your win rates. So, for example, I I was rated 139. Let's call it 140, just for ease of numbers. Sure. I'm giving myself an extra point. Um. Let's say I was playing someone better than me. Let's say I was playing someone that was 160. Okay. The difference there is 20 points. Yep. 
So the difference in our win rates is 40. Yeah. And so I would win 30% of the games and they would win 70% of the games. Mm, Which is okay. a bit of an awkward calculation to do. Uh, but yeah, and, and worrying to do um, something as absolute as that when considering percentages. Because what if you have more than 50 points difference? So at 50 points, that's the point that you should get 100% win rate. Yes. That's what it's predicting here. Hmm. Oh, okay. Right, yes. Because chess is, yeah, it's, there's no sort of luck involved in chess. Yeah. And and what they're saying, I assume then, is that if there is that difference and somebody who has a 0% chance of winning does win, then they've got the wrong score anyway. Yes. Yeah. Right. It's a self-adjusting system. That's the, what they design these systems to do. Um, and that's quite neat. I, I had to search quite a bit to get this percentage rule online. People hide it a bit, but there are there are lots of little forums where people are discussing these kind of things, and it's certainly something I've heard on the circuit. ELO, which is the system that they use for most other chess things, which is similar, um, has different percentage rules. They're slightly more complicated. Yep. But it's if you're a hundred points difference in a normal, so lots of people will play on chess.com. So that's quite a good estimation of what your uh, normal fee day rating is. If you you're 100 points higher than someone, you should have about a 64% win rate. Okay. It gets to about 73 when you're 200 points difference, and right. so on. Right. But I think it just comes from a kind of logarithmic distribution. I, th- I think you're just reading off uh, values from your distribution tables at this point. Mm-hmm. Whereas the English Chess Federation one is quite nice. What I've been trying to think about is, over time, did the average ratings go up or down? And what's kind of causing those things? In which system? Uh, let's do English Chess Federation. I think it would be equivalent to North. You mean in a in a closed? I mean in, in all system. of the people who are registered to play, because you can look them up on the database. They're all there. But are, but are we including people leaving and entering the system? Well, that that's what I'm thinking about. Right. That's one of the things that I think will contribute. So let's let's consider that. We've got people that start. They are young. They will not be very good, usually. Over the course of their lifetime, they will play, they will get better, they will retire, they will die. They die storing those points. It's not like money and inheritance. You can't, you don't then disperse it amongst your friends. No, and they're not removed from the system. Their points aren't redistributed. They're removed in that they're not going to play any more chess. Right. That's a good way to think about it. Think about it in terms of the amount, of the number of points in the system. So in a particular match, let's assume that two people play, and that's the only th- that's the only game they play in the entire season. Okay. Are points conserved on a match-by-match basis? Um, one of the things you have to take in- into consideration is how many games someone plays. So it is not zero-sum. If you play the same number of games as the one and any other person you play, that's fine. Because you would get some points, they would lose some points, those would be equal. And then when you're doing the averaging process, your values of n are the same. Right. Uh, yes. Yes. So you divide the, the change by the number of games that yeah. they play in that season. If you play one game and the other person is playing 30, then that game matters less to them. Right. And so it's not zero sum. Yeah. Possibly the people playing more are winning more as well. But I don't know. <laughs> just from right. practice so games themselves are not zero sum yep 
Uh, and then, yes, like you just said, you want to look at the, um, the correlation between number of games played and number of games won. Yep. Because if you're playing a lot, you're probably winning more, like you just said. Yeah. And so, Some people play casually, some people are playing a few times a week because it becomes their life. But if but if you're gonna if you're someone who loses, then you know by the opposite of that, then if you're not playing very many, you're probably losing. Yeah. And so that's more important. And so points of leaving the system on average. That that feels right. And also there are people that may lose a few games and then exit the system because they've decided it's not for them because they keep losing. It's like gambling, right? Mm. On something that is kind of zero sum, something like poker. The people that make money from poker are making the money from other people. So the yes. professionals make their money from the people who flutter a bit away and then lose it all and stop. Well, hopefully stop. There's a flow f- of money from the people that play for a bit and then stop to the good people. I wonder if the same is true of ratings. So people yeah, that played a bit yeah. as a kid get registered with the ECF, play a few matches against adults, lose, stop. Right. Go off to university, get on with their lives. Right. I know in ELO, so the more international one, that the top players are getting higher ratings year on year. So something's wrong with the system there. Something is going up. And one of the problems is there are ranking caps. Once you get to certain rankings, and once you qualify through certain tournaments, they don't let your rating go below a certain level. Oh, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, there's a kind, there were kind of like diodes built into this. I think ECF has that at the top. I didn't realise this until I was researching it. Hmm. And so when they, you have these people who are up above like 2200, so these are like the Grandmasters. The top yeah. Grandmasters in the world are just over 2800 at the moment. Right. Um, but that's crept up. So in the 90s, the top ones were 2700. Oh, not crept up by much. Yeah, that's true. It's, n- it's not dramatic. The tails of this distribution are tendrilling out. Right. I don't know what's happening to the main bulk of the data then. Mm. Uh, but maybe that's just the limit of a system where you're talking about there's huge numbers of people in the middle that the ones we care about are right at the top. Those are the ones you hear about. Mm. The Magnus Carlsons of this world. Yeah. And so maybe the, the system of ELO is just not built for those sort of people. Right, it's like how IQ starts to become meaningless after 170 or so. Yeah. Yeah, it's not designed for that. I know that they use ELO on a number of other systems okay. and games. Yep. Right, so I know they have it in... I think it underpins League of Legends. It does. I think yep. I think they use it on that. And I think they have mass corrections, don't they? They have... Or they have things where they, they reset everybody but I'm sure it's some kind of live thing that's constantly ongoing as well what they've built into some games is because people with high ratings don't want to risk playing people with low ratings they end up not playing Yeah. so Magic the Gathering used to have an ELO system before they introduced Planeswalker points they introduced Planeswalker points which kind of diminish over time if you don't use them because people were just sitting on their high ratings and refusing to play <laughs> right, because sure. it's the sort of thing that got them qualified to tournaments. Having a high rating, yeah, yeah. And I think various other games and sports and things have done, made the same decision. ELO, but with slow degradation by not playing. Right. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do it carrot or stick. You can have it rewarded by having some extra points if you play a lot. 
yeah. activity bonuses. Yeah. It feels quite artificial to put all these bodges on. Like you, I have this kind of not great reaction to the fact that there are these diodes in place, these warm-way systems. Exactly. And it's also, it makes me feel a bit like, you know the difference between the NFL and the English Premier League? Uh, is NFL the American football? The National Football League, yeah. 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 Um, the Gridiron League. Is that they don't have the concept of uh, relegation and promotion. Okay, is there just one big league in American football? Yeah. And so it was a really big deal. And oh, this is the same across like like most other US sports. So they have a league that has a set number of teams and those teams are always playing. And they they do, to be fair to them, have a lot of good work in place to try and make things fair. Like they'll put like, salary caps on uh, on players and they'll, they'll uh, have the, the concept of the draft where you have the... There's a sort of chance of you uh, having first dibs on new players coming out of college, for example. Okay. But it was a really big deal just to switch sports very slightly for a second here in the NHL when they had a new team. They had the uh, the Las Vegas Golden Knights, I think they're called. And yeah, so there was a new a new team, and that was like, whoa, big deal. It's, it's like, oh, wow, there's a new team. But in the English Premier League, and actually all the way down yep the all the way down football league you have the ability to go from like a local pub team all the way to winning the highest championship because there's a pathway to promotion yeah. and so the thing that winning. i didn't you just keep winning yeah and so the thing that i didn't like about what you were saying the chess thing is that there was something that stopped you from going lower yep and that's kind of what they have in the NFL. You could have the worst team in the world that just never wins, but they can never be like bumped out of the system for being too too terrible because they're they're locked in. Another thing that has this cap, the lower limit cap, that I've been doing a lot of recently. So Magic the Gathering has released a, an online one called Magic Arena. Yeah. There's a ranking system on that. It goes bronze, silver, gold, and then a whole lot of ranks above that with various names like platinum. And once you get a few leagues up. Every time you lose a match, you lose some. You lose kind of one step on this ladder. Every time you win one, you go one step up. But once you get to certain like milestones, you can't go below other milestones. So once you get to a certain rank, you yeah. you can't then go down because they just assume that if you got it must be based on skill and yeah you've managed like, to get to gold and you're not going to go you've got to gold one you're not going below gold four or whatever. Sure. I've seen an interesting post on Reddit where someone was analysing this with Markov chains. Right. So he was saying, okay, well, as soon as you, there's random perturbation here, like you can win by chance here. Let's say you've got a win rate of forty-five percent, so less than half. Because there's a lower cap on these things, eventually the number of wins you get in a row will outstrip the number of lo- losers you go. Random walk. Mm. And so he was doing expected number of um, games played for you to rank up to the top ranks for different win percentages. Sure, yeah. And because it's random, what you'll get there eventually. The difference between that and chess is, you, you mentioned chess was there's no luck involved. Magic the Gathering, with the best play and the best deck in the world, you can get a whole lot of uh, hands without lands in and it's unplayable. Yeah, you could. I think the, the, the win rate for pros is something like 72% or something like that. Whereas Magnus Carlsen could um, win consistently against people who were a few hundred points lower than him. Yeah. Yeah. He's never going to lose against me. 
there's no random walk yep. in chess. Yeah. Hmm. Can you imagine that if there was a chess unit that had a probabilistic movement? You say, I want to move this one, and then you have to roll a dice as to which direction it goes in. Like, imagine that with a knight. Hmm. And, you, and you, you have to roll, and then it, you keep rolling until you have a valid move, and then it goes there. It'd be terrible. Yeah. Luck does have its place in games, though. So the argument for having it in, in Magic the Gathering is that it uh, encourages newer players, and it gives them a chance of winning their first game, and they'll be like, oh, I like this, and they want to play more. Hmm. Yeah. Luck introduces different setups as well. You're not always playing the same thing. Yeah. So even in games which are deeply strategic, like nice German-style games, I don't know, Agricola, by having slightly different setups every time, it means you can't just roll up the same game. Hmm. Whereas chess, you very much can. Yeah. Luck also introduces a set of skills that you wouldn't otherwise use in no-luck situations. Like, it is a skill to play around the luck and to manage it. Yep. To manage the risk accordingly. To uh, dial up the risk when you need to and dial it down when you're more secure. Or, or the opposite, however you want to play. <laughs> play securely when you're behind. To call your way up. Or play riskily when you're on top. Because you can. It's more fun. Right, so feedback. I think this is the most feedback we've ever got. We've got all sorts of emails here. Yeah. Some of them we're storing for later times because uh, we've got lots of people suggesting problems and there are other people suggesting things which are uh, complicated enough about things that we've done in the past that require some thinking on our part. Mm. So we'll, we'll uh, store them in the back and we'll, we'll bring them out in future times. Yeah. Um, I've got a nice one here from Andrew Slattery. So the carpool problem that we did last time, this was me uh, when the w- I was in a car with a whole lot of people and uh, we were shuttling backwards and forwards to get everyone to the pub, ideally at the same time. But uh, yes. the idea was the quickest time possible. To the breakfast bar. Yes. Um, we got quite a nice formula last time, which was the uh, ratio of the distance... So how much of the distance you should go out of the total distance was equal to 1 plus the ratio of the speeds. That's the uh, the ratio of the uh, car speed to the person's speed. Yep. Over 3 plus the ratio of the speeds. Yes. So 1 plus R over 3 plus R, which was quite nice. We were quite proud of it. Andrew Slattery's generalised it. So this is if you've got a driver and N people that you're trying to uh, take... Mm-hmm. Um, he's done a whole lot of algebra here and it's, it's all very nice so we talked about um, it being parallelogram and on the show we, we mentioned that uh, we could bounce the lines more times he's done that he's done the work on that um, but he, he's done it with any number of people and um, it's quite nice so the proportion here of the distance you should go is 1 plus r over, and then instead of 3, it's 2n minus 1 plus r. So, as n increases, you're just getting different odd numbers in that place of that 3? Yeah, the next odd number. Yeah. In a row. Yeah. So, if you're only shepherding one person, it would just be 1 there. So, it'd be 1 plus r over 1 plus r, which is just 1. 
yep. i.e. you should take them the whole way. Fine. Works. If it's three, it's the case we already proved. The next one will be five. So if you're shepherding three people, you take the one plus R over five plus R of the way. Yeah. Really neat. Nice scaling. Thank you. Now we had an interesting result when you had two people but R was one, which is that X equals a half and they and, 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 and they swap over. So the, um, when R was one, that meant the velocity of the person was the same as the velocity of the car. Yes. And our f- formula was suggesting that one person gets in the car, they all travel along as one sort of caravan, and then mm-hmm. halfway along, they swap over who's sitting, but it doesn't slow them down any. Yes. Um, does this formula spit out sensible results for R is less than one? I don't think so, no. No, it shouldn't, should it? No. Because everybody would just leave that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You shouldn't get in the car at that point. Yeah. Whereas this is giving some kind of semi-sensible looking value of X. Yeah. But that is actually meaningless because you wouldn't get in the car. But I wonder if there is any meaning behind those values of X when I was less than one. But I I, I doubt it. For it's probably s- just some, some mirror. Let's say that the car can't move. And so R is zero. Yep. Then it's telling you that you should drive it a third of the way. A third of the way. Which is yeah. I wonder if there's any meaning to that number. Like it might actually mean something, but I don't think it does. But that's fine. Hmm. Yeah, that's allowed. Uh, right. We've got an email here from a listener, Will Hemmons. Um, we've had a nice chat back and forth. Um, he's been working his way through the back catalogue. He has um, talked about some of the more recent things going on. So um, a few episodes ago, to, uh, uh, episode 24, we talked about vampires and werewolves. Right, yeah. Um, I don't even, f- even think that was our Halloween episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was the one where we had um, lies going on. and They were sitting around a table. Don't know how yes. well you remember these sort of things. No, I do remember that one. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so we had vampires lying if they were talking about werewolves, and werewolves lying if they were talking about vampires. While we were doing that, you misheard what I was saying at one point, and you interpreted it as uh, they were lying if they were talking to werewolves or if they were talking to vampires, ones of the opposite right. species. Yeah. Um, and you were. You were working under that um, misconception for a bit, but got the right answer anyway. Got the right answer anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, Will Will Hemmons has pointed out, actually, those two systems are completely the same. Hmm. Uh, It requires a bit of working out, like just sat there with a truth table. But in the scenario that we set up, they are identical. Is it just that one particular scenario, like the N equals 4 case that we were talking about? Uh, He's done it for different values of N. Okay, for all values of N. And actually it simplifies it a lot. And so... By thinking about it that way, you can talk about any uh, collection of people around half the table. If you take the anti version of that around the rest of the table, so if you went vampire, werewolf, werewolf, vampire, you could then take the the opposite of that, werewolf, vampire, vampire, werewolf, to be the other four. And uh, all patterns of that type, where the, f- the first N are inverted to get to the next end yeah. to satisfy it and it's more obvious to see in that format in than, that format which I think was the point in the question it was made to obfuscate 
the uh, the structure here as much as possible. Right, to make it a hard question. Yep. Well, thank you, Will Hammonds. First long-time listener, first-time writer. Or, actually, not long-time listener, is going through the back catalogue right now, it would seem. Yep. Yeah. He, he's put things about other things, but I'll, I'll save them for future episodes, I think. I'll leave them out. I need yeah. to work, work them through myself. Yeah. And I've got an email here from one of my students um, called Matthew Shaw. And it was about the Goblin game that we talked about. It was the Game Theory one from Magic the Gathering that we talked yep. about last episode. Yeah. Um, he's uh, coded up something in Excel. I'll put it on Google Sheets so that uh, people can have a look at it. Uh, but it has boxes where you can change numbers. And it will tell you the optimum thing to put for any life total. For your for your own, yep. So as the numbers change, you can uh, it will automatically calculate for you what you should be picking. Uh, it agreed with our results. This is assuming that the enemy has twenty life and will only go up to eleven on their count. Uh yes, I think it is. It does yeah yeah. But in terms of twenty twenty, does seem to agree. Interesting. The um, from looking at it, if you put twenty as your current health. And this assumes that they've got twenty as well. Um, then you know we said say one or two, but that doesn't actually seem to be the case. Yeah. Um, assuming that they're also, you know, going to act randomly. And so if you have twenty and they have twenty, then actually you should be saying four or six according to this. Yeah. Now we got to the point where we were saying that we should say an even if you're on an even, and an odd if you're on an odd. Which this is bearing up. Yes, this agrees with that. Yeah. So we try it for 19. Um, 5 is the best one here. Hmm. And actually, uh, there's a tab here where he's done a, a summary of the results. So it's 1s and 2s for ages, and then it kind of accelerates. But there is an odd evenness to it. Yes, so 1, 1, 1, 2, 1, 2, 1, 2, 1, 2, 1, 2, 1, 2, 1, 2, 3, 2... Three, four, five, four. Whoa! I wonder if there's like a pattern, yeah, like calculable pattern. It's quite nice. And notice there was one where where it didn't obey the odd even thing right at the beginning. If you're only on two life, you should say one still. <laughs> <laughs> don't bring such trivialities into my house, Alaric. And <laughs> <laughs> don't do them in your "I'm saying something interesting" tone. Well, no, that is interesting. It's an early one where it breaks sure because you'll kill yourself yes if you say two you'll go to zero life okay yeah <laughs> hey but nice that the uh, the well, good coding on this that it's managed to work that out okay. yeah yeah we'll put a version of this that you can have a player around with up yes any other feedback none that I can think of Cool. Well, I know that there's some that we haven't done, and so we're going to spread it out over a few episodes as we think about it. Um, but yeah, in the, in the meantime, you know where to find us. Well, if you don't know where to find us, listen to the end of the show, and you'll find out then. Right, so, roundup time. What were the three things that we did this episode? So, the first one was uh, a problem from Andrew Slattery. It was the uh, Friends and Strangers. Friends and Strangers. Ramsey theory. Yes. Yeah, that bent my brain at the start. 
Yeah. I couldn't even like break my way into it. It was like an egg. But then when I did, there was lots of delicious goo inside. You caught on straight away that it was craft fairy, and then didn't go anywhere with it. Yeah, I couldn't. I, 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 yeah. <laughs> I just spun my wheels. It was, yeah, weird. But I think they're quite satisfying problems. Mm, I um, think as well. That, that, that looping back on yourself on just the free free case is neat. And I think it's one that isn't too bad to reason out. There's not too many cases. Whereas this four free case, I'm happy with our solution for ten. I would like to see a neat solution for nine. Because it yeah. never exists. Um, neat being uh, can be explained to us and not PhD mathematicians. Well, yeah, I I don't want a sim. <laughs> I don't want a sheet full of symbols. I want the, this is the idea behind it, even if it's a, now go and fill the details in for yourself. Right. Right. I think there's something to be said for this whole, like, placing yourself in the graph. We've done that a couple of times on these graph theory things. Mm. Putting yourself in the graph, like first person perspective within the maths. It's weird. Normally you think about maths as being like, out there or like on the table in front of you but to change your views so that you are one of the entities and you're inside the thought experiment and it just that kind of freaks me out philosophically a little bit you take get to the bottom of why that is yep yeah right eight. Oh yeah scores uh yes eight agreed right what do we do after that so then I, I just touched on a few things that I was thinking about with that had sprung to mind from this great book, Scale, by Jeffrey West, which I've had on my bookshelf for a long time. Um, and uh, yeah, sorry that there wasn't really any sort of puzzle or anything really deep to go into. It was quite shallow all the way through. Hmm. Um, and so I, I, let's just assume that it's kept like a one or a two from both of us um, <laughs> in terms of like actual problem solving yeah there's nothing to do I, I'm no. happy to want it yeah give it a but number Alex we need the metadata I'm gonna give it a two cool um yeah but more to come on scale because I think there's a bunch of interesting bits yep. to be had in there and more to just on these sort of maths books in general um Alaric a long time sent me the book Planiverse uh, which I will get around to reading um maybe I don't know maybe as a sort of uh as a problem, we could do minor review of a book. Maybe review is the wrong word, wrong word, but like we've done it in the cut, past. Go to Leisure Park. A book. Go to Leisure Park. We did already. Yeah, there we go. So part two of let's think about a book uh, is either yeah me going to be reeling off stuff from scale that I found most interesting, or it's going to be some kind of discussion around uh, planiverse. And if anyone else has interesting maths books that aren't just like I don't know, you get these like books of mathematical curios or whatever things like that where it's just like a, a pile of stuff I don't find as interesting um, I, I hope over the course of the show you've got a sense of how we view maths and like what's what's interesting and what's not uh, yeah any <laughs> recommendations send them in and then the last thing we talked about uh, rating systems ranking systems so a lot of it was in the context of chess but also how sports do it how online games do it. Yeah. Um, a lot of these systems are very similar to each other, 
and I quite like that. They're all they're, there's clearly a good concept at the heart of these. Is that yeah a fundamental truth? Yeah. Some of them are just based on who you're playing and how well you did against them. Some of them also take into account how often you've been playing. So, if you're playing lots of games, it assumes your rating is closer to its true value, and so it doesn't change as much. Hmm. Um, it's just scalings on these things. But I think we we're both unhappy with the idea that you have minimum levels on things. It, it's bodging it too much. Yeah. It's uh, taking out the anyone can win. That becomes a, an elite group that is harder to get into. Yeah, exactly. Four. Mm, yeah. Three. Mm. We've had some interesting discussions this episode, but they yeah. didn't lead anywhere. Well, yeah, but I mean, there weren't a lot of puzzles going on, really. Yep. It was it was like, is this thing, maybe. Um, we'll maths it up next time. Yeah, we will. I have a recommendation. Okay. I don't really don't really know where to put this. It doesn't belong at the end. It doesn't really belong here. It doesn't belong in the uh, in the community section. But I watched a really, really good lecture intro to quantum computing. Um, and it was quantum computing for computer scientists. I put it on my Twitter. I'll put it in the show notes. If you know how to do a 4x4 matrix multiplication and you've got a bit of a sense of what a logic gate is, that's all you need. Okay. And I, it's brilliant. It's I, Honestly, I haven't, I've never seen a better intro to quantum computing. I get it now fully um well not fully because <laughs> they didn't even talk about the block sphere and they and they stayed clear of complex numbers as well but um yeah super super good so i'll, I'll put that in the in the show notes make sure that if you have an hour and a half it's more like an hour and ten because then he goes off and does a bunch of demos but if you have an hour and ten hour and a half then then uh, i highly recommend it right thank you everybody for coming along to the show odds and evenings uh, podcast about mathematics, puzzles, numbers, and games. Um, how do you want to get in touch with us, people in the audience? There are so many different options. You can choose Twitter at Odds and Evenings. You can choose email, uh, which would be oddsandevenings.com forward slash contact. And there's a form you can fill in there. Yep. So it's, uh, if you go onto our website and click contact, it will send you to the right place. Yes, that's true. If you want to find me, you can find me at, at speakmouthwords. Uh, I tweet about some maths. But it's most. I mostly leave that to at odds and, at odds and evenings. This is my outlet for that. Um, God knows what I tweet about. Um, any other ways that people can contact us? No. No. <laughs> You're out of luck. You don't use email. You don't use Twitter. That's it. Um, but there's been some good traction on the email. Keep it coming, everybody. Um, and like we always say, and we'll continue to say... Because in the future, there might be three times as many episodes as this current episode. If you're going through the back catalogue and you have something to say about a previous episode, please email us about the previous episode. Just because it's not current doesn't mean you can't talk about it. Because maths is eternal. Is any maths temporary? Nothing pure, right? I don't know how to answer that. Okay. (laughs) Nothing, no maths is temporary that isn't wrong. I feel like there's something else we want to talk about. I think we're done. I feel like I've forgotten something. Oh, yeah. You know what? In a while, though I haven't said, background music by David Russell 323 on on YouTube. Links in the show notes. He's a very happy bunny at the moment because Kingdom Hearts 3 has come out and that's his biggest musical influence and most favorite thing ever. Um, So shout out to Kingdom Hearts 3 and to David who did our uh, 
uh, intro and outro music, which, fun fact, have we said this on the show? It has a name? Have we said this on the show? Uh, we haven't, no. The intro and outro music is called Mint Julep, and it was named that ever since the beginning. It's not a recent thing. It's always had a name. We just never mentioned it. I didn't realise that that was a drink. Oh, that is a drink, yeah. Um, I saw it mentioned in a film. I think it was a Bond film. And um, it was like, oh my god, that's that's our <laughs> that's, song. <laughs> that's the B, that's our song. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Right. See you all soon. Bye. already done that it's just a matter of showing the link okay will they all have separate editable ones <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> it'll be mass mass multiplayer um <laughs> uh yeah i don't know you yeah we'll just make it so that they can download it okay yeah when that becomes the unofficial forums <laughs> yeah the Excel spreadsheet <laughs> of Goblin Game. <laughs> we'll come back in months' time, and they'll uh, they'll be playing Nomic in it.